Fans for Sports Network listeners, welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet. This is Kevin Smith, your host, and here we are now at the completion of the NFL preseason and the regular season is a little over a week away. Uh, and if that's not cause for some excitement, I don't, I don't know what is. This is just really a special time of year. Summer's winding down for those of you like, like me who are a teacher and I've had some time off, uh, although well, coaching football all summer doesn't feel that way, but I have to go back to my to my regular job very soon. And that is always, I'm not going to lie, a bit disappointing. You just get used to being able to do a little bit of your own thing during the summertime and uh, you have to go back to the structure of work. But with that comes football season. So it's always an exciting time of year. And I can't imagine the enthusiasm that's building across the country in the various fan bases as people gear up for their favorite teams, their fantasy teams, all the little things that we we love to do. Man, it's amazing what a, uh, I'm not trying to be disrespectful uh, by using this phrase, but how football has almost become like a religion in the United States. People are really devoted to it. And, uh, uh, and it brings with it a celebration that is, that is like a holiday. Maybe that's a better term for it. It's like an extended holiday when football arrives. So it's here. And uh, as a high school coach here in New Jersey, I just recently was a part of a really special event. Uh, Our season kicked off last weekend and Ocean City, where I coach, hosts a kickoff event event known as Battle at the Beach, which this year was phenomenal, attracted significant uh, interest across the country as on Saturday night, the feature game between IMG Academy in Florida and St. Joe's Prep in Philadelphia, both of whom are ranked in the top 10 nationally by, I guess, whoever does those polls. I don't know how you determine those things for high school. But IMG is the third-ranked team in the country, and St. Joe's Prep was the 10th-ranked team, and they played each other on our field in the Battle at the Beach, and it was televised live on ESPN2. And that was a really cool thing to see and a cool thing to be a part of. We got to play on Friday night. Uh, Our kids rallied for a a victory. We were losing – in the third quarter and we came back and, and won it in the fourth quarter. And that was really exciting with a backup quarterback, no less our starter got injured and our backup came in and, and, and rallied us to a couple of touchdown drives. And that's always exciting to see a young, a young person take advantage of an opportunity like that. Uh, and then on Saturday night, we got to see the IMG St. Joe's prep game and the IMG St. Joe's prep game featured 17 of the nation's, top 300 players, according to ESPN, the ESPN 300, where they rank the top players in the nation, 17 of those players, including the number one player in the nation, the most recruited player in the nation, whose name is slipping me. I should have looked it up before I came on here, uh, but he's a defensive back at IMG. He's headed to Georgia and uh, just the talent on the field was remarkable. IMG's running back is headed to Texas. Their star defensive end announced at halftime in this sort of like live, you know, they they kind of have these stage production type shows that he will be uh, attending Oklahoma. St. Joe's prep is a bunch of four and five star kids. It was remarkable to see the speed and athleticism on that field. Uh, And to think that they're high school kids, right? I mean, it made, it made our game look like, like, you know, disrespect to my, my own players, but it made our game look like we were moving in, in slow motion and and somebody had sped up the, the video, so to speak for, the IMG game. And it really gives you an appreciation for how 
unbelievably talented the NFL players are because you see the difference between uh, a football, a high school football at one level versus another when you get to watch a team like IMG and St. Joe's Prep when you get to watch those guys play. And then you go and you watch college football at the various divisions. And you, again, the jump up in speed is remarkable. And of course, at the pro level, it's a different thing altogether. It's funny. It makes it feel as though the field has shrunk. The speed really reduces the amount of space on the field. And you have to scheme to create that space. And, uh, and that gets into a whole other fascinating conversation. So really, when we talk about the NFL now, we're talking about the most elite athletes on the planet. I watched that St. Joe IMG game from the sidelines and was just remarkably impressed with how fast and physical the kids were. And granted, 17 of the nation's top 300 players were on that field. Maybe, maybe a couple of them will make it to the NFL. And that's how good the NFL is. And we're going to talk about that in a minute because I'm recording this on Tuesday. Tuesday is cut down day in the NFL. And I want to give a shout out uh, to all the young men who are about to get cut today because they're remarkable football players and remarkable athletes. And they deserve uh, just a, a moment to be acknowledged even if they don't wind up landing on an NFL roster. So we're going to do that in just a minute. Before we do that, though, a little, a little tradition we've started here on the show is to announce what episode this is and then to honor an NFL player who wore the number that corresponds with that episode. And this is episode number 20 of the call sheet. And I would be willing to guess that just about everybody listening right now can, can think of a number 20 in uh, the NFL, either current or past, Who's a darn good football player? It's it's a number that's been worn by some of the best players to ever play the game. I, the guy who leaps to mind is probably Barry Sanders. But then you have this list of defensive players in particular that's really impressive. Brian Dawkins, one, one of the great nicknames of all time. Weapon X. Philadelphia Eagle fans, I mean, the moment you mention Weapon X, they immediately get excited, right? Brian Dawkins had that effect on uh, the fan base that he was one of the most beloved players that uh, that the in Eagles history. But then you have Ed Reed, right? One, of, I'm, I mean, I'm a Steelers fan, and I have to say that if you if you ask me to name my favorite all time player from a rival, a Steelers rival, whether that be the NF, NF, uh, the AFC North teams or the Patriots or somebody along those lines, it would probably be Ed Reed, man. I loved Ed Reed. And that's hard to say about any Baltimore Raven as a Steelers fan, but I couldn't get enough of watching Ed Reed. My, my respect for him and how he played the game uh, is just, uh, you know, almost uh, impossible to calculate. And yeah, you know, and other great, great defensive backs like Rondé Barber and Duran Cherry, if we're going back a little bit further, I mean, the number's been worn by some darn good uh, NFL players and defenders in particular. But the guy I want to talk about for briefly here, just for a moment, uh, is an older player, and he's a Steeler, and I try not to focus this show on the Steelers. I don't want to be accused of too much homerism here. But this is a, this is a story worth, worth arguing, or, or, or not arguing, I should say, but worth, worth telling. And that's number 20, Rocky Blyer. And some people know Rocky Blyer's story, but for those who don't, let, let's recount it quickly. So Rocky Blyer was drafted by the Steelers back in 1968 out of Notre Dame. Interestingly, he was drafted in the 16th round. He was like the 419th overall pick, something along those lines. And as you can imagine, the NFL has 
drastically reduced the, its number of rounds. We now have seven uh, and some and some undrafted free agents after that. But long story short, they just couldn't sign that many players. Rosters were, were, were reduced and it was just too many pe- players to bring in and evaluate. So they they reduced the draft. Blyer's, Blyer goes to the Steelers, 1968, 16th round pick, running back out of Notre Dame, makes the squad as a long shot rookie. Doesn't really see much action, but then is drafted. This is 1968, right? We're in the middle of the Vietnam War. Is drafted and sent to Vietnam, where he serves a tour uh, in Vietnam. And while fighting in South Vietnam, his platoon was ambushed and Rocky Blyer was shot in the thigh. And while trying to extract himself from that firefight, uh, along with other members of his company, was wounded when a grenade exploded near him. And the grenade, I mean, really blew apart his right foot. And when he was in the hospital recovering, the doctor straight up told him, you'll never play football again. You'll, you'll be lucky to walk again. You're very lucky we were able to save it. They thought they were going to have to amputate the foot. There were serious questions as to whether he'd walk again. Uh, and then, of course, football, that was just out of the question. And I mean, I think Rocky Blyer had kind of resigned himself to the fact that he was never going to play football again. And then he got a postcard. He got a postcard from Steelers owner Art Rooney. And the postcard simply said, Rock, the team's not doing well. We need you. And there's a lot of stories about how how, uh, beloved Art Rooney was. But that might be my favorite. Just to take the time to write a note to a guy who was a fringe player on the team, a 16th round draft pick probably easily replaceable from a talent perspective. Uh, but it wasn't really about that, of course. It was about Art Rooney treating people in the organization like members of his family, uh, making them feel special, trying to inspire Rocky Blyer to come back. It's just a great story. And he does. Rocky Blyer does. He begins to rehab. He comes back to the Steelers in 1970. He can't play, but they don't cut him. They, they keep him on the team. Slowly, he begins to recover. Uh, and by 1974, right, and it's a long process, but by 1974, he's he's worked his way back into being an NFL caliber running back. The Steelers wind up trading uh, one of their starting running backs. They had a two-back backfield at the time, Franco Harris and Preston Pearson, and, and they trade Preston Pearson to the Cowboys. Rocky Blyer steps into the starting lineup, goes on in 1976 to become just the second player in a running back tandem. He and Franco Harris, just the second duo in history to both rush for a thousand yards in the same season. And Rocky Blyer wins four Super Bowls with the Steelers before he retires. It's really a remarkable story. Talk about a profile and courage. Uh, I mean, it's, he's really sort of one of the ultimate stories about uh, resilience and, uh, you know, a, a really appropriate story to tell today in particular with it being cut down day in the NFL. Which is a good segue now to to that conversation. And I want to talk about that briefly, right? Because today is cut down day. Uh, each team has carried about 90 players in camp for, for the preseason. And they've got to get that number down to 53. Now, a lot of teams have been slowly reducing their, uh, their rosters, making cuts over the last four or five days. But today will be a big one, right? A lot of teams are still in the 70s as far as their numbers are concerned. Uh, So when you think about the fact that that you're going to go from 90 players to about 53 players in the course of a week, you're you're going to cut about 40% of the guys that you carried all throughout camp. And many of those guys are darn good football players. 
And just to give you an idea about how good they are, right? Let's just look at some statistics. Of all the players in the, in the United States who play high school football, only about 6% of those players make it to college, to play in college. So about 6% of the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of high school players in America go on to play in college. And then of that number, only a little more than 1% actually make it to the NFL. So you, when you talk about the millions of football players that there are, are all across America, of the ones, of the, of the 6% that make it to college, only 1% of that number makes it to the NFL. That's a really exclusive fraternity. I mean, you're really talking about the elite of the elite. And, and many of those players are going to get cut today or, uh, or have been cut in the last few days. And it's probably easy to dismiss those players as, you know, hell, that guy's not very good. But on the contrary, that guy's remarkably good. He's remarkably good as a, as a football player. Uh, just wasn't good enough to make an NFL roster. When you, when you think about starting quarterbacks, I mean, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of starting quarterbacks at the high school and college levels all over the United States and, at, and in the levels of the various professional leagues. There's only 32 of them in the NFL. If you're starting quarterback in the NFL, you're one of the 32 best at a position that might be the hardest to play in all of sports, of which there are literally thousands upon thousands uh, of competitors all trying to win one of those 32 jobs. It's it's an uh, incredible accomplishment to become a starting quarterback in the NFL or in the bigger picture to make an NFL roster. So for all the players that are, are being cut today, be, today being Tuesday, right? I just wanted to say, you know, shout out to all of them because it's incredible how hard these young men have worked trying to make it to the league, how much time that they've invested in chasing their dreams. You know, some of these guys are going to, are going to make practice squads or, or maybe get signed by some other teams. Some of them might go overseas or, or to Canada or play in one of the alternative leagues that have popped up. Um, but for the ones that have are going to decide, you know, the dream's over and it's time to move on with your lives. Congratulations. You did. Uh, you, you made it further than 99 point something percent of all the other people to play football will ever make it. And for that, shout out to all of you. OK, we're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, we're going to look at the preseason. Right. We're going to and we're going to do some takeaways. What five big takeaways from the recently completed preseason as we head to the regular season. This will be our last preseason show and we'll sort of wrap it up hey what are the big takeaways what did we learn what are some of the more interesting aspects both on and off the field uh that we saw from this preseason and then next week it's our pregame show man our first our, our lead-in show so this is our a great chance to wrap up the preseason so we'll do that on the other side come on back Welcome back to the call sheet. Kevin Smith with you. We are going to talk about some of the big takeaways of the NFL preseason, including some of the news filtering in from the cutdown wire, which is today, well, today being Tuesday, most of you listening to the show on a Wednesday. So as I'm going through the show, the cuts are really starting to filter in, and I'm going to start to talk about some of the reaction to those, as well as 
some of the other big takeaways from the NFL preseason in this segment of the show. But before we do that, let's let's talk about something really exciting. So, so here at Fans First, we've launched a contest that is a really awesome and I think unique uh, opportunity for fans of NFL teams to get a shot to go see your team live in week one of the NFL season. If you are an NFL fan, I, I can only imagine that you would love to attend your favorite team's week one game. Well, if that's the case, you're in luck because Fans First Sports Network is giving away four free tickets to the week one NFL game of your choice up to a $5,000 value for those seats. So again, if you win this contest, you can, you're going to win up to $5,000 of value for NFL seats for free tickets to the week one game of your choice anywhere in the country. And the rules to enter are really simple, right? Here's how you do it. You go to contest.com fansfirstsports.com, and then you just fill out the appropriate information, which is very simple and brief, and that's it. And once you've done that, you've been officially registered to, again, win four free tickets worth up to $5,000 to any week one NFL game. So if you're a fan of an NFL team, right, if you would really love to go see them, then, hey, get on and register, man. Contest.fansfirstsports.com, fill out the information, you get your shot. The contest will end September 4th, so don't wait. Really awesome and exciting opportunity here being offered by the Fans First Sports Network. Okay, so on to the, uh, are some of the reactions to the offseason, or, or I should say the preseason. And, and some of the news is really just trickling out right now. And so I'm going to react quickly. The first thing I wanted to do, I said I'd give you a, five reactions before the break. And the first one is going to really just be about the news that's coming down now in regard to cuts and waivers. And I'm not going to talk about individual players so much as I am. I just think some of the broader and more interesting uh, themes that have emerged or, or actions that have occurred. All right, let's start with this. The Carolina Panthers on their final 53-man roster, have decided to keep five tight ends. I don't think I've ever heard of that before. I don't think I've ever heard of a team keeping five tight ends. Frank Reich said he loved tight ends, and then he proved that to everybody uh, by making them about 10% of his roster. So that's really interesting. I mean, maybe Carolina will be the first team in NFL history to run a 14-personnel formation, right? When you name personnel, as you hear all the time, oh, 11 personnel, 12 personnel. That's usually those two things indicate the number of running backs on the field followed by the number of tight ends. So 11 personnel is one back, one tight end, 12 personnel is one back, two tight ends, 21 personnel, two backs, one tight end, et cetera, et cetera. I've heard of 13 personnel. Teams will occasionally run 13, one back and three tight ends, 14 personnel. I don't, I think I'd have to actually put it on a, like a whiteboard. I have to draw it up to see what it looks like, but who knows, man, Carolina's got five of them. So let's see if, if they, if they do that. Uh, Jacksonville kept seven wide receivers. That's at least one and, and maybe even two more than most teams. Most teams keep five active. So it'll be interesting to see how Jacksonville slots those receivers on game day. Now receivers are often special teams contributors. So you have to guess that some of those Jacksonville receivers are going to be big on special teams, but they're just simply not going to be able to keep that many. Wouldn't be shocking to see them trade one of them. Pittsburgh kept two punters. 
I mean, the Pittsburgh offense was pretty good this offseason. I, I would have been, I think I would have been less shocked if they kept no punters and they just said, like, hey man, Kenny Pickett uh was on the field for five possessions this off this preseason and they resulted in five touchdowns. So I could see the Steelers feeling themselves a little bit and being like, we're going no punters, but they went two punters, which of course indicates that they think one of those guys is pretty valuable as a trade commodity. Uh, Arizona cut Colt McCoy on Monday, who was thought for most of the preseason to be their starting quarterback. And they cut him only a couple days after trading for journeyman quarterback, Josh Dobbs, who will now be on his fourth team in four years in the league. And they immediately announced that Dobbs will be the either Dobbs or, or rookie fifth round pick Clayton Toon will be the starter. And whew, I don't know, man, that's, uh, I'm not, I'm not one to, to judge, but that just seems like some, so a shaky proposition. I'm guessing Colt McCoy uh, just showed that he's just not, ready to be the starter or, or he doesn't have it anymore. And they had to, they felt like they had to move on from him. And Dobbs was a guy who was available and tune the rookie uh, must've impressed them enough for them to feel confident that he could start if pressed into action. Either way, whoever starts is going to be a placeholder until Kyler Murray comes back, but Kyler Murray might, might not come back for a while. So long story short, uh, it's, it's going to be a rough go of it on offense in Arizona. Speaking of cutting quarterbacks, New England waived both of their backups, Bailey Zappi and, and Malik Cunningham. And as of right now, they they have only Mac Jones on the roster at quarterback. Now, I actually thought going back a little bit a couple months ago that that Bailey Zappi might give Mac, Mac Jones a run for the starting job. I actually thought, hey, maybe there's a possibility that this could be a competition in New England because he showed some good things last year as a rookie, but now he's gone and uh, the Patriots will certainly be in the market for both a backup and a number three. And I guess my last kind of roster observation is this Tampa Bay kept 13 rookies, 13 rookies, six of whom were undrafted free agents. That's a big number. And so the bucks uh, are clearly having a youth movement, right? Tom Brady moves on and you know, they are, in the, in the rebuilding restructuring process. And we'll see how that goes with their youth movement there in the very winnable NFC South. Okay. So moving away from the rosters a little bit, let's talk more about just some, just some general observations about from the preseason as a whole. What are some, what are some of the bigger takeaways from the things that occurred both on and off the field this, this preseason? I'll start with, with this. The quarterback position remains one of the hardest in all of sports to evaluate. To say that it's an inexact science is an understatement. I don't know if there's a, a, a surefire way to evaluate quarterbacks. We've seen first rounders go bust. We've seen late rounders become stars. But one thing that seems to be uh, a, a, an emerging trend, consistently emerging trend, is that teams should be where spending high draft picks on quarterbacks who haven't played against elite competition. And we really saw that underscored by the Trey Lance trade, right? Trey Lance, who was the number three pick in the 2021 draft, uh, whom the 49ers spent three future first round picks to acquire, was traded this week for a fourth round pick to the Dallas Cowboys. That's all he got in return, a fourth round pick. 
And you look at Lance's background, right? He plays at North Dakota State in a run-heavy offense. We're talking about personnel groups earlier, right? I mean, they were a big, like, 22 personnel group, fullbacks and tight ends. And that wasn't exactly an NFL-style offense, particularly in the passing game. And then you compound that by the fact that Lance played in just 19 games in his college career against FCS competition, right? North Dakota State is not an FBS team or, or the, what we used to say is an old school division one team. And, and Lance played only one game in 2020 due to COVID. And that game was against, uh, I think middle Tennessee or central Arkansas. That's what it was against. It was against central Arkansas, right? So the one game he plays in his final year in college is against central Arkansas, but San Francisco fell in love with his potential, right? He was athletic and he was gifted and, you know, they they like to to pass off of the run just like North Dakota State did. And, they, and I think they saw him as being a guy who they could use in their wide zone bootleg scheme that, that Kyle Shanahan likes so much. But without the proper training against elite competition, Lance just proved to be unprepared for the NFL. It's probably not so surprising that he was not able to make it in San Francisco and whether he makes it in Dallas will be very interesting to, to watch. And I guess a similar story, although not as quite as dramatic can be told about Tennessee's Malik Willis. Willis wasn't a round one pick like Lance, but he was touted as one. Most people thought he would go in the first round and then he actually fell to round three where Tennessee drafted him last year. And he played at Liberty, which is a mid-major type school. And they ran a college-style spread offense that was predicated on single reads and mirrored routes, which are just you're running like the same route concept to both sides of the field. You're running like slant flat to both sides of the field, which is generally not how NFL passing trees are structured. They're usually full field read progressions. And so neither the competition at Liberty nor the scheme was NFL friendly. And Willis has really struggled. I mean, he he looks he looks like he's going to be the, the backup to Ryan Tannehill in Tennessee this year. And by most accounts, his play has improved. There were there were some conversations during the offseason about him not even making the roster. And Tennessee was so worried about him, they went out and spent a fairly high pick on Will Levis, the, the University of Kentucky quarterback, who got injured, which has helped Willis's ascension. But Willis is, is a, another guy who who looks like a long shot to really pan out in the NFL. And let's, let's take one more example real quick. Carson Wentz, who preceded Trey Lance at North Dakota State. He was taken second overall by the Eagles back in 2016. And he did have some early success. As a matter of fact, in his second year, Wentz rallied the Eagles to a 10-1 start before a knee injury derailed his progress and paved the way for Nick Foles to become a folk hero in Philadelphia. Foles stepped in and took the Eagles to a Super Bowl championship. And that didn't sit well with Wentz. Wentz was never able to sort of recapture the hearts of his teammates or the fans. He was eventually traded to Indianapolis. And, and that, that process repeated itself, and he was then moved to Washington. And, you know, Wentz's struggles seemed to be as much about his personality and his work habits and his response to adversity as his background. But he's another high-profile quarterback from a smaller school in whom a team invested significant draft capital only to see it go to waste. So you can't paint with a broad brush, right? But when you look at these three recent examples, smaller school quarterbacks who did not play against elite competition, who have struggled to adapt to the NFL game, 
And then you juxtapose them against, for example, Brock Purdy's story, right? Everybody was shocked last year when Brock Purdy, Mr. Irrelevant, the last player drafted in the 2022 draft, when he threw injuries to Lance and Jimmy Garoppolo, stepped into San Francisco's starting lineup and was excellent and wound up claiming the starting job and really paving the way for the exodus of both Garoppolo and Lance from San Francisco. When we look at Purdy's success, though, it, it, again, the last guy taken in the draft doesn't generally step in as a starter, as a rookie, and lead a good team on a deep playoff run. But Purdy's success really should be less of a surprise than Lance's failure. And that's because Purdy played in 48 games at Iowa State against big-time competition, NFL-ready competition. And he threw for over 12,000 yards, and he had 81 touchdowns. You know, and meanwhile, Lance, in his last season in college, he threw a grand total of 30 passes against Central Arkansas. So the potential and the physical attributes, they were clearly on Lance's side, but Purdy had the experience in the training. And so it shouldn't be shocking that Purdy is the starter in San Francisco and Lance is trying to rebuild his career elsewhere. Again, long story short, in the inexact science of evaluating quarterbacks, it may be wiser to err on the side of experience and competition versus the potential upside of the talented but untested quarterback. All right, let's move to another observation about or uh, about our takeaway, I should say, about the offseason. And that is the interesting sort of holdout market that emerged. It was a really interesting offseason and preseason for holdouts. Some of those are still unresolved. We'll get to the resolved ones first, right? The running backs made a lot of noise about their dissatisfaction with the devalued running back market. And we saw some high profile holdouts. Saquon Barkley held out for a while. Josh Jacobs, both of those eventually were resolved as those guys signed one-year deals and reported to camp. The big one, of course, that is unresolved is Jonathan Taylor's. He remains a holdout. He is asked to be traded Indianapolis granted that request but as of again this I'm, I'm I'm recording here on Tuesday night as of tonight Taylor has still not been moved and while he's expected to go I think a lot of people thought that with cut down day being today this might be the day you'd see it but the running back holdout market has been interesting because in many ways it's about players but that they've made it also about a position group as a whole. And I don't think that's something we've ever seen in the NFL. I don't think you've ever seen almost like a union within a position group of guys say, I'm going to take a stand for our position. Uh, and and it, it'll be interesting to see as we go a year or two ahead if, if there are not further holdouts. For example, Najee Harris in Pittsburgh, as he he's, he's about to enter his third year, when he gets to the end of his fourth year, right, after next season, what will become of, of his status? Because he's been among that vocal group who's been disappointed with the, the status of running backs and how they're being treated in the NFL right now. But you have some others too, right? You still have the big holdout uh, in San Francisco where Nick Bosa uh, wants a contract extension that would make him the highest paid player in the league at his position. And San Francisco... You know, they say that they want to get a deal done too, especially with the season opener at Pittsburgh less than two weeks away. And 
that feels like that one's going to end fairly soon because Bosa is really important to the 49ers. The Niners, this is not, this does not appear to be acrimonious. Maybe it's Bosa just saying, hey, I'm willing to sacrifice a few dollars to not have to go to training camp and then use it as leverage in my negotiations. But that feels like that's going to get resolved. But the Chris Jones situation in Kansas City is still unresolved. And Jones has been placed on the pup list, physically unable to perform less by the Chiefs. And, and he's indicated that he's willing to take this one well into the regular season. So it'll be very, very interesting to see if that one does get resolved or at what point. Holdouts are not new. They've been something that have been a part of the, uh, uh, you know, a sort of a tool in the player's arsenal for a while, especially since the franchise tag became a thing and guys not wanting to play on the tag, et cetera. But this year it just seemed like they were particularly uh, active and contentious or at least high profile. And it'll be interesting to see if that's a trend that emerges going forward. Another trend that's emerging, I think is a really interesting one is this, this was a preseason where you saw a lot of joint practices throughout the league where teams got together and practiced with another team for a certain number of days, right? The, the, the Washington commanders and the Baltimore Ravens did it for a few days. Uh, the Indianapolis Colts and the Chicago bears did it for a few days, right? The Patriots held uh, some joint practices with, I, I can't remember who I might've been, uh, oh, shoot, the Giants, that's who it was, right? The Patriots and the Giants got together for some joint practices. And, you know, I, I talked to, I talked to a couple of NFL people about this and why, why are they uh, moving towards the, the joint practice as a, as a, a, a tool to use in the preseason? And the thought was because Within the structure of practice, which is a much more controlled environment than a game, uh, you can get a really good look at, at players against opponents and at their technique work and their skill level and their competitive spirit and all that without having to put any X and O's on the field for other teams to see. Whereas in preseason games, even though you stay very, very limited and you don't show your hand very much, you're still putting out your X and O's. The joint practice is a great way to get that work in, but to control the environment, you know, sometimes games can't be controlled because of the way that they evolve. They're fluid, right? You get a turnover here. One team gets goes on a 16-play possession that eats up eight minutes of the clock, and you don't get to play some of the guys you wanted to take a look at. Whereas in a joint practice, you can script it all. You can say, hey, we're going to do our nine-on-seven inside run now. And I'm going to look at this guy, this guy, and this guy, and then I'm going to sub out and I'll look at these guys and we're going to go for 20 minutes. And then you're going to do your seven on seven passing skelly and you're going to do some quick whistle team sessions. And I can script it all, control it all, microscope it all. And that really seems to be a, uh, a trend that teams are gravitating towards. As Mike Tomlin, in his very sort of Mike Tomlin-esque way, said when asked about it this past week, he said, well, it's hard to box without sparring. And then Rams coach Sean McVay suggested that the joint practices are actually more valuable to teams than the preseason games. So it'll be very interesting to see if the NFLPA moving forward attempts to write some language into the next CBA uh, that would maybe eliminate another preseason game in favor of some of these joint practices. All right. So we've talked about the roster, uh, the roster cuts and, the, and how teams have made some interesting decisions talked about the quarterbacks and the holdouts and the joint practices, which brings me to my fifth and final 
takeaway from the NFL preseason, and that is the following. The NFL continues to value its own. And I say that because of the Jonathan Taylor situation. I would have bet a lot of money that Taylor would have been moved today. That that Miami, a team that really appears to be in need of a running back and maybe you know a player like Jonathan Taylor short of competing for an AFC championship or even an NFL championship, that they, they'd make a move. I mean, Buffalo is kind of, for me, a dark horse candidate. I, I thought maybe they'll be in the mix somewhere. Philadelphia, the Cowboys are always sniffing around for star players. And so Taylor was a move. And, that, and that's not to suggest he won't be. I mean, he, he very well could be moved in the next couple of days. But I think his teams were making their final cuts. There was an emphasis on sticking with the players they know for the most part and really valuing how well those players fit into their systems and how well they had learned their systems. NFL coaches are really, I don't want to say protective. That might be the wrong word, but they, they, they place really great value on their system, meaning the scheme that they run, the way that that scheme gets installed, the nuances of that scheme. Many, many teams run similar schemes. Oh, we're running inside zone. We're running duo, right? We're going to run these same three or four pass concepts, right? We're going to run wide cross and we're going to run dagger, right? And we're going to run, you know, post wheel and blah, 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 right? But whatever. It's the way that they kind of tweak those schemes and it's the adjustments that they make on those schemes that they feel makes their system unique. And oftentimes they don't like to bring players in from outside who haven't had the proper training in that system because they don't feel as though they know the nuances. Trading has never been a huge part of the NFL the way that it's a part of the other major sports. Trade frequency has definitely increased. You have a new generation of general managers in the NFL who have grown up with things like fantasy football and playing Madden and watching the other sports and how active they are and superstars being moved in those sports. And they've definitely brought a more aggressive philosophy to the NFL game as far as trades are concerned. But it remains a league that values and protects its own. And we didn't see any real major trades involving significant stars this preseason. There were some players who were moved for sure in the offseason around the time of the draft. But once teams got into mini camps and training camps and began the process of installing their schemes and their systems, trade the trade frequency just diminished. And I think that's just the way the NFL does business. And I think it's very interesting because it speaks to how involved coaches are in the NFL. It's a game that the coaches have play a significant role in and they want to you know, they don't they don't just want to control the chess pieces, but they want to know exactly which chess pieces they're working with. OK, so the preseason is done. Those are our takeaways from it. And the games now begin. And next week on the show, we'll be talking about all of that. Right. It'll be well, this show this show airs on Wednesdays. So we, it'll be the eve of the kickoff, which which next Thursday is going to be Detroit at Kansas City. That'll be a really fascinating matchup. A lot of hype around the Lions. And we'll talk about that and the coming NFL week uh, as we whip around the league and, 
and hit on some of the major stories. So I can't wait to do that. So for Kevin Smith, this has been the call sheet. Thank you very much for joining me. Get your NFL game on, people. We're about, we're about there. Have a great week, everybody. Take care. <laughs>